0: This is the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center podcast. Interviews and discussions with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, the opening remarks from the symposium Law and the Environment, Designing a Transatlantic Agenda, with LexisNexis CEO Andy Prosser and Fran Burwell, Vice President and Director of Transatlantic Programs and Studies for the Atlantic Council of the United States. On January 7, 2009, the Atlantic Council of the United States, in cooperation with LexisNexis, held a symposium in New York City on law and the environment, designing a transatlantic agenda. The goal of the symposium and dinner, hosted by LexisNexis CEO Andy Process, was to explore U.S. and European approaches to environmental regulation and international environmental law As a precursor to discussing how the United States and European Union might better cooperate in protecting the environment. Symposium participants included C. Boyden Gray, until recently U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, and who was instrumental in the writing of the 1990 Amendments of the Clean Air Act. And Michael Girard, Professor of Professional Practice and Director of the Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School, and Senior Counsel to Arnold and Porter. The dinner featured remarks by Carter Roberts, president of the World Wildlife Fund. With a welcome and introductions to the program is Andy Prozis, LexisNexis CEO, followed by opening remarks by Fran Burwell, vice president and the director of transatlantic programs and studies for the Atlantic Council of the United States. Here is LexisNexis CEO Andy Prozis. Well, as you can see, we've got a
1: very impressive group of people. Uh, We're going to get into the issues. My job, really, I think, is to... uh, to kick things off. I'm not planning on getting into anything Particularly heavy at the very beginning. I should explain that the afternoon is, and the evening is, partly being hosted by the World Wildlife Fund, and uh, Boyton Gray is going to be with us. I should probably explain uh, how it is that I ended up, in part, uh, associated with the World Wildlife Fund. I gave uh, a cellular interview to the New York Times, uh, one of these, I guess, CEO Corner things or whatever it was, and our PR people thought it was a good idea. And at the very end, they ask you that. In the event that you were to pass from this earth, what would you basically support or want to do with your, with whatever money was left? And I said, you know, I really would like to find a way to preserve wildlife around the world because what's happening to uh, our animals uh, around the world is, personally, to me, really quite disturbing. And as a Canadian, and I'm gonna, some of my remarks are going to touch on what it is that Canadians do and don't do, and then to me, it's just incredible that in Canada where we have such abundance of wildlife that we don't take better care of our wildlife. And I said this in the interview, the next thing I knew, next morning, I was getting phone calls from the World Wildlife Fund uh, and have uh, developed a good relationship with them. And uh, as I say, I'm very, very happy to be here. I was asked back in September to talk to the British North American Council of the Atlantic Council, which really was founded many years ago just after the Second World War to bring together Canada, uh, Britain and uh, the United States on matters that were considered at that time. Uh, Canada at that time, by the way, was, was a, a little more of a powerhouse uh, in world affairs than it is today. And the idea was to bring together business people and politicians and government uh, representatives and, and the military and discuss common (coughs) issues and deal with common issues and so forth. And this British North American Council has continued on and become quite an interesting organization. And I was asked to say a few words and I thought given that the world economy was collapsing that I should talk about the differences of the economic downturns in the three countries and why those differences occurred. So uh, what you you found was that there were material differences in, in, in national policies. Their material differences and how the the countries each handled what was happening, but more than anything else, I think the the uh, the uh, on one hand there were differences, but at the same time there was interdependency, as we all know, uh, in the economic world and among, among countries. Uh, and clearly, there was a lack of international law that governed what occurred. I mean, there was barely. There was not there are questions about whether there was enough regulation in the United States, let alone regulation that went across the world. And fundamentally the message that I delivered is that when you look at what occurred, even though the differences there were differences among the three countries, the reality was that a mortgage that went bad in Iowa had an impact on a bank in Iceland or in Austria. That we today live in such an interdependent world that no longer can one country exist economically or survive or, or thrive economically uh, without being very aware of interdependencies on, uh, in other parts of the world? And quite frankly, that is, if anything, I think my primary message today that uh, when it comes to the environment, uh, when it comes to all of the different outgrowths of the environment, including impact on wildlife, that really it's a very much an interdependent uh, world and it isn't something that we can deal with on an individual country basis. The reason that we're co-sponsoring is, as I said before, somewhat personal. Uh, It is uh, a topic and and related outgrowths of that, in particular, particular, as I said, wildlife, that I really do care about uh, personally a lot. And as I began to understand, not anywhere to the extent of the people around this table, began to understand uh, what was going on here, that it really uh, was pronounced that different countries were doing things in many different ways and that there was a real lack of overall international governance, uh, as we all know, that, uh, that uh, was brought into play and we all know about the Kyoto Treaty and its lack of success. And, uh, and in fact, the United States, of course, didn't even sign it. So the real difference, I guess, uh, the only real difference between what I said about the uh, the economic issues that faced the world three years ago and, and today's talk about the environment, or my comments today about the environment and and so forth, is it really boils down to the same point. It's instead of talking about the person who failed in his mortgage in Iowa, uh, and the impact that it had on the Iceland bank, uh, really talking about somebody in the Amazon cutting down trees or in Indonesia, and the impact that that's having on farmers uh, in many different parts of the world. And uh, as we all know, what's happening in China today is having a profound impact on the, uh, uh, on the environment uh, that, we're, that we're facing. I guess one way that I would um, describe what's happening is that we're uh, in an e- ecological credit crunch. We're using up our natural resources much faster than, than the earth can sustain, and we're living beyond our, our means when it comes to our environmental uh, spending. And one of the things that, I guess, uh, concerns me is that Canada, which is uh, uh, represents um, something like 2 or 3 percent of the world population, consumes 7 percent of the uh, world's energy. Uh, so even Canada, with all of its natural resources and so forth, cannot uh, seemingly handle its requirements and its needs. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if, if everybody around the world consumed as many natural resources as Canadians do, uh, if you notice I'm picking on Canadians, not uh, picking on Americans, <laughs> um, that uh, that we would, we would there, make though. three Earths. pardon? We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> everybody does, don't they? <laughs> Uh, anyway, you're exactly my point. Is that the problems extend far beyond, uh, uh, of course, uh, Canada. Um, Canada is probably a small player in the overall problem, as I think we all know. Um, the greenhouses greenhouse gases are accumulating at a very, uh, very rapid rate and much faster even than the rate that's projected by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which I'm not personally familiar with, but I gather has some cachet uh, on these matters. Or not? Well, maybe it doesn't. <laughs> I was told it did, but uh, nevertheless, if their point is valid. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the, the statistic that was uh, thrown out by these folks and, and so uh, is that in this century we're looking at a 2.4 degree uh, increase in the average mean temperature around the world and in point of fact there's uh, even a possibility that it could be six degrees which of course would have major impact now I realize this is a touchy area and touchy subject a lot of people don't accept that and believe that and uh, and it gets even into I suppose some degree of politics but nevertheless it, it's I think almost irrefutable if the world is warming, I suppose we don 't agree on exactly why it 's warming, but well we all know that the implications of what 's going on uh, in the world is going to uh, is touching every one of us and it 's going to touch our children it 's going to touch our grandchildren uh, I, I really do personally do uh, do think that um, I mean, we 're seeing some uh, of the tensions that are occurring right now in the Ukraine with the gas being cut off I mean if you end up being cold and you can 't uh, you can't uh, 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 find heat and so forth. You're going to do some pretty unusual things. Uh, and if you can't get your hands on water, even in Atlanta, last year when they're running out of water, uh, people do some interesting things. So the tensions that are going to occur in the world as a consequence of what's happening environmentally, I don't think any one of us can even even imagine what the world might be like in 100 years' time. Uh, in Africa, we're seeing some of the worst problems with drought, pollution, and explota- exploitation of natural resources. But the land degradation is, uh, is really horrible. Between 1990 and 2000, Central Africa lost forests that were equivalent uh, to uh, about one-fifth of the United States. And this uh, rate is just picking up speed. Uh, We all know what's happening in the Amazon. Uh, Many Africans are are dependent on rain-fed agriculture. In other words, they need water in order to live. And so if there are changes in climate in Africa and anywhere around the world, there are going to be some profound impacts on how people uh, live. And there they have less capacity for change and less uh, flexibility for change than many other parts of the world. The number of undernourished people in Africa doubled in, in the last 10-15 uh, years due to the environmental impact um, on uh, uh, their habitat. Going a little closer to the areas that I guess I have somewhat more of a particular interest in, which, which has to do with wildlife, the uh, the poaching and pressure from human expansion threatened various animals in, in, in Asia, in Indonesia, Vietnam in particular, uh, I, I suppose none of us can really blame people for killing what they need in order to eat. But as a Canadian who watched uh, Asian people come into Canada to hunt bears just to get their gallbladders, <laughs> and I remember being in, in uh, Shanghai and seeing on the street corner people selling um, paws of tigers and, uh, and so forth. You know, Maybe that's life and maybe we're never going to change things, uh, but it is certainly very distressing. We're seeing all sorts of uh, uh, animals disappearing in, in parts of Africa and Sumatra and so forth. And in Canada, even, you've got the polar bears who are, of course, disappearing, although I gather Canadians are making a lot of money by hosting... Uh, various parts of uh, various people from around the world to come up and have a look at these polar bears before they're all gone. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not keen in doing that. But uh, I guess hunting is something that, uh, again, is a pretty touchy subject. Hunting is a $15 billion industry uh, around the world. And uh, when I was in India a month and a half ago, then uh, we were told that if you really wanted to kill a tiger, if you wanted to kill almost any animal, as long as you paid enough money, <laughs> you could legally, you could legally go and kill any any animal that you wanted. So all of this, in my mind, anyway, suggests that uh, we're not moving in the right direction. That uh, we really need to have urgent action in many different ways. And the only way it's going to work is if we have some form of coordinated oversight uh, on a global basis. I don't think anything is going to. Uh, I think what what has happened with tusks and so forth uh, in Africa, to the extent of my knowledge, anyway is an example of how if the world bands together and starts to curb things on a coordinated basis that you will see some meaningful action. The global economic crisis is having clearly a major impact uh, on on all this in every part of the world. For many years, the EU led the uh, control or minimization of CO2 emissions, and they announced in Poland, the EU announced in Poland last month, that it was adopting tough Commitments to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 20% by 2020, and 30% of other developed nations matched them. And then somebody did a little bit of work and looked at all the various exemptions that were allowed, and concluded that at best you could probably get 4%. And by the way, since there's no real, there's no real retribution if you don't make it anyway, then you know the whole thing becomes a bit of a silly game. Now even, I shouldn't say even in Germany, but uh, uh, Germany has led the fight in in the environmental area in many different ways. And Merkel, of course, has been very pro-green. But even now she is saying that job reassurance is more important to the average worker than being a pioneer in tackling climate change. Uh, And I guess uh, none of us can really argue with that. We have to feed our families and we have to look after our, uh, um, you know, putting money on the table. Now, on the plus side, there is something called CAP, which is the common agricultural policy, which probably people around this table know a lot more about than I do, but it is increasingly aimed at hitting off the risks of environmental degradation. I didn't really fully realize this, but half of EU land is today farmed, and apparently policies like CAP encourage farmers to play a much more positive role in maintaining their lands and to make it more more sustainable and to make farming more sustainable. I guess one of the key questions, and I'm sure this will be a point of discussion uh, in the afternoon, is the is the is what comes after the uh, Kyoto protocol. The first commitment period expires in 2012. Most of the Kyoto signatories have failed to reduce their CO2 emissions uh, during the last 10 years. In fact, the emissions have gone up. A- and as I said last month in Poland, I guess last month in Poland, negotiators began to see uh, what would replace the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, it would require most developed nations to cut their emissions, which uh, in this economic climate is hard to see uh, any nation honestly and, and meaningfully uh, signing up to. Now, we've got a new president, Barack Obama. He is very committed to the uh, environment. Uh, he's apparently putting that fairly high up on the agenda. And certainly it's one of the reasons I I personally gravitated to, uh, to to him. And so he's pledged to invest $150 billion over the next 10 years and catalyze private efforts to uh, build a clean energy future, whatever that might entail. Put 1 million plug-in hybrid cars uh, on the road by 2015. Ensure that 10% of U.S. electricity comes from renewable sources by 2012 and 25% from renewable sources by 2025. Implement an, economy, an economy-wide an economy cap-and-trade program to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050. Now, all of this is very impressive. I did ask about the nuclear program, which he's indicated that he's supporting, in my mind anyway, that's a key element of us getting anywhere close to having um, having a better uh, environment so we'll see how well he does his heart seems to be in the right place and uh, and at least we'll presumably get off on the right foot by saying a lot of good things. We'll have to see whether or not any of it uh, actually materializes, especially in this economic situation. When I did speak at the British North American uh, Council uh, back in September, I did quote from Hans Corral, who's the former Undersecretary General for Legal Affairs and, and the Legal Counsel for the United Nations. And Hans said that where there is a void, and he was referring to the, the void when it came to uh, overall global oversight of financial markets uh, that that void will will be filled in one way or another uh, in other words people will take advantage where there is a void and we certainly uh, have today a void unless something comes out of the uh, renewal of the Kyoto Protocol we've got a clear void when it comes to the environment so getting to the starting point for our discussions we're going to have to figure out perhaps not this group but but someone's going to have to figure out how we're going to work through all of the economic circumstances that we're facing, and uh, and help the public officials and governments that are dealing with this to fill the legal void when it comes to international oversight of the of the environment. And this may be a long uh, stretch that is impossible to, to to get to. But we basically need an international rule of law. On the environment that crosses the various geographic and national boundaries that we have in the in the world, the failure of Kyoto really does mean that we uh, we need strong international accountabilities and people stepping up to the plate with commitments. I guess the question in my mind, being uh, as pragmatic as one can be, is how that can really materialize uh, in the world in which we in which we live. So, my question today is. How feasible is it and how sensible is it and how practical is it for us to create a a global rule of law for the environment that allows for fair domestic oversight and regulation and yet puts into place aggressive international standards given the challenges in today's uh, economic climate. So thank you. And at this point in time, I'll turn it over to Fran.
2: Thank you very much. It's Andy. I wanted to extend a welcome on behalf of the Atlantic Council of the United States. I wanted to thank LexisNexis for its support. And because I often forget to do this at the end of the meeting, I wanted to thank James O'Connor who got all of you together. I think you all had lots of emails and everything like that. And that kind of practical work is something that if you don't have someone to do it, you don't have bodies and chairs. So, so thank you both to LexisNexis and Andy and to James. I just wanted to say a very few words about the Atlantic Council and why it is hosting this meeting. Basically, our mission in life is to improve transatlantic relations. And We have looked for places in the transatlantic relationship where there is, shall we say, difficulties, uh, and tried to find ways where we can move the relationship forward. We've done this across a whole bunch of different areas. The last few years have been challenging, I won't deny that. But one of the areas in which we've done a bit of work has been international law, primarily international humanitarian law, that such major headline issues as Guantanamo, treatment of detainees, uh, the International Criminal Court, and how the US and the EU differ on these areas. And in fact, LexisNexis has helped us with that work as well. And we recently, with Chatham House, hosted a meeting on that in London just before the holidays. We also have done work over the years on environment and and energy, and including climate change. Some very kind of regulatory, but not necessarily, some regulatory issues in terms of climate change, but not necessarily with lawyers, more with government technocrats, if I can put it that way in the room. And it seemed to us that there was a place to bring these two strands together, law and the environment, for exactly the reason that Andy said about the need for rule of law in this area. And particularly, we saw this going forward in two areas. One is kind of a comparative domestic regulatory area. And another is kind of the international treaties and other arrangements that govern the environment in an international sense, in a global sense. So we thought we would try and bring these together in a, in a kind of exploratory um, seminar here and take advantage of the opportunity that Andy gave us, especially with the dinner tonight, and to see if we could get a discussion going on this. There are three things that I'm hoping for from this meeting. Number one is happening right now. We are recording the commentaries for podcasts on the LexisNexis site. They have a website called Environmental Law and Climate Change Center. And the remarks will be on the on the website, not the discussions. We're going to keep the discussions kind of Chatham House rules because we think it's, it's easier for people to talk. But uh, we checked with the commentators and they didn't indicate any objection to being podcast. And I thought most probably would enjoy it. And so what we will do is once that is all up, we will send that around to all of you. We'll send the link. And hopefully you can disseminate it even further. The second product that I'm looking for out of this is advice on how to take this conversation forward. What would be a good way to do this? Is there a core group maybe bringing in even more Europeans that would be useful in in taking this forward? What kinds of topics should be addressed? Today we're just doing kind of a skimming of the surface. And the last product that we would hope for is exactly as Andy said, there is an opportunity now because of the change in administrations. And with that change in administration, we would like to see whether there are some initiatives that might be taken on either side of the Atlantic or together, some specific things that would make some progress in this area. As a Washington-based group, we're always thinking about what we can recommend to the government, and so if anyone has thoughts on those, as you make your remarks in the discussions, I hope that you might peg some things, and uh, those might be worth further investigation, even if in a very raw form right now. You've been
0: listening to the Welcome and Opening Remarks, to the Symposium Law and the Environment, Designing a Transatlantic Agenda, presented January 7, 2009, by the Atlantic Council of the United States in cooperation with LexisNexis. This is the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Podcast, copyright 2009 by LexisNexis, a division of reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, Total Practice Solutions.